Please be seated. Before I read God's word, let's pray. Lord, we pray because you hear prayer and because we are needy. And so as we come to your word, if your spirit is not in this, if you are not with us, then this will all be an utter waste of time. But if you are here and your spirit is working in us, then this is one of the most important things we can do. To read your word together, to hear it expounded, and to apply it. Father, our confidence is not in our ability to hear or in my ability to preach, but in the Spirit's ability to build our faith. And so we pray that you would do that now through Christ our Lord. Amen. Look in with me at John chapter 1, if you would. John 1. Uh, as you're turning, I want to tell you a little bit about our philosophy of preaching at First Scots. We do what's called verse-by-verse expository preaching. Uh, and, and the goal of expository preaching is simply to, to see what the Scriptures say, not what we want them to say, but simply what do they say. And, and we work verse-by-verse through books of the Bible um, for a couple of reasons. One, I think because that's, that's how God's Word was intended to be read. You know, oftentimes we think of God's Word in terms of a verse here and a verse there. That is a very modern phenomenon. Prior to a thousand years ago, there were no chapter divisions, there were no verse divisions. And so to, to just cherry-pick verses occasionally is a really peculiar thing. It's, it's very, uh, very much a, a result of our contemporary culture. We read the whole book of the Bible, we work through it verse by verse, because that's how God wrote it. It doesn't mean that there aren't times where a topical sermon can be preached here or there, but the normal diet of God's Word ought to be verse by verse working through books of the Bible. That's the first reason. The second reason we do that is because because it makes the preacher a slave to the text. It, It makes me, it makes Pastor Walton a slave to the text, and you know this, every pastor has certain things we just really like preaching about. We probably have other things that if you gave us our choice, we really wouldn't preach on that ever. And and so, in working verse by verse through books of the Bible, it makes the pastor a slave to the text so that you're not hearing simply what I want to talk about, my pet issues, so that I'm not avoiding controversial things that might offend somebody I am a slave to what God has written there. And so for about eight weeks, we've been looking verse by verse at the gospel according to John. John's gospel was the fourth and last of the gospels written. And John's going to tell us very clearly at the end of the letter why he wrote it. Let me read it to you. John 20, verse 31. He says, these things are written so that you, for Scots, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Every word of this book, dear brothers and sisters, is written that you might believe in Jesus Christ. And as you, your faith increases, you would enjoy more and more the abundance of life that is found in Jesus Christ alone. John says, that's why I wrote this book to you, dear brothers and sisters. Today we come to verses 43 through 51. Listen to the reading of God's word. 
The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thus far in John's gospel, this is our our eighth sermon, as I said, the Apostle John has been setting before our eyes with wonderful clarity the reality that Jesus is the Christ, that he is God in the flesh, and that he came to earth to dwell, literally to tabernacle among us, to be the temple among us. And John wants us to understand, because he's seen this with his own eyes, he wants us to understand that this is an objective fact that Jesus Christ became flesh. And yet, he knows there are many who don't believe it. And there are others who perhaps ascribe to it intellectually, ascend to it intellectually, but it has no significant impact on how they live. There's no faith, there's no trust. John's purpose is not simply that we would believe it, but that by believing we would have life in his name, fullness, abundant life. That's what Jesus said in John 10.10, I have come that they would have life and have it abundantly. Now, the neat thing about abundant life is there is no brim to it. There is no top to it. And so there is always more available. There is always greater joy in Christ. There's always greater hope. And so John has written this even for us who profess to be believers, that our faith may be increased and that we may more and more and more with every successive day enjoy the fullness of life that's available to us in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And what John's doing here is he's showing us how this happened in some of the lives of the earliest apostles. So we saw this in the previous passage when Peter called John, I mean, when Jesus called John and Andrew and and Peter. We see it today as two men encounter Jesus and their lives are utterly transformed by him. They meet Jesus Christ here and the trajectory of their life, the direction of their life is completely redefined and reoriented in this moment. As we look at the text this morning, I want you to see three things. The first is the God who seeks. Second, I want to see who God seeks. And then third, we're going to see what those who have been found by him now seek. Now, if that's confusing, it's printed in your bulletin. 
First, the God who seeks. The passage begins the next day. John has been giving us a a multi-day account of what Jesus has been doing. And not only does it show us how committed Christ is to the work that his father sent him to do, but it reminds us he's flesh and blood. I love the way that, that John says it. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Maybe he wanted to do some shopping, and that's where the nearest target is. We don't know why he wanted to go to Galilee, at least not yet. But the end of the verse is extremely illuminating. It says he found Philip. He decided all of a sudden to go to Galilee, but he had an eternal purpose. He found Philip. That, that word found in the Greek, it's eureske. It's the root of our word eureka. I, I found it. Now look at, we see it in verse 43. Look at verse 45. Philip found Nathanael, same word. And then the end of verse 45, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets also wrote. Now here's a a, a thought, you may know this very well, but when you're studying the scriptures and there is a word that is repeated again and again like that, that is God's signpost saying, hey, this is important. This is the key to understanding this passage. This passage is about lost and found, seeking and finding. And what we see as we pick up this passage is we are encountering the God who seeks. How did Philip, as he said, we have found him, how did Philip find Jesus? Because Jesus was first seeking him. You know, that's so important. We, we become believers, and most of us think like Philip, I have found him. That's not entirely right. We don't find Jesus because Jesus was never lost. We are lost. And in our lost state, we don't find Jesus, we actually run away from Jesus. The natural human heart is utterly predisposed against knowing and submitting to the God of the Bible. Now, we don't mind uh, gods that we make in our own image, gods that we manufacture, but the God of the Bible, we have a natural predisposition against that. That's what Romans 1 says, that, that Uh, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, I love the way C.S. Lewis says it. Lewis says, man seeks God about like a thief seeks a policeman. Simply put, we do not want to find this God because we know that we're guilty, and we know that if this God exists, then he has to be God over us. You know, most people's arguments against the existence of of the God of the Bible really are not intellectual arguments. They're about the will. If this God exists, then I have to submit my will to him, and I don't want to do that. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 3, there is none who seeks God. Are you sure, Paul? No, not one, just in case we wanted to argue with him. He says, they have all turned away. And so how is it that Philip began seeking Jesus? Because Jesus first sought him. Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Why? Because he was seeking Philip. I wonder if sometime later, some of us are really good at overthinking, and we think about every word that we've ever said, and why did I say it that way? I wonder if Philip later went, why did I go and say, I found him? He was the one that found me. You know, that's our natural theology, even when we become Christians. Our innate fleshly theology is I found him. I did the work. There was some spark in me 
that got it, that understood it, when countless others hear the same message of the gospel and they turn away. And we tend, naturally speaking, we tend to think of the gospel as a partnership. Jesus comes seeking and then I come seeking and we sort of meet halfway. I have to open my heart to receive it. But you know, if you really study the scriptures, you see, salvation is not really a partnership. It's not a cooperation. In fact, the only thing that I contribute to my salvation is the sin for which Jesus died. But he did everything to accomplish my salvation. And so our gra- the, the grace of God that finds us, that seeks us and finds us, is sovereign grace. And, and you can open up Ephesians 1 and 2 and see that. You can open up uh, Romans 9 to 11. You can open up just about any book of the Bible and you'll see sovereign grace. And I want to give you a heads up that we're going to see that again and again and again in the book of John. We're going to get to chapter 6 and Jesus is relentlessly pushing this idea that if it is not for the sovereign grace of God, we will never come to him. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 6. Then no one will come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. This is sovereign activity here. This is the work of God alone. Sovereign grace comes to us by the God who seeks and saves his people. Look at your hymnals for a second. There's a hymn. uh, Look at 466. I want you to see the lyrics of this hymn. I, I, I thought about singing it. It's a hard hymn to sing. It's sort of a tongue twister, and tongue twisters are never ideal in hymns. Um, but it's a theologically great hymn, and maybe we'll be able to sing it one day. But it captures exactly what's happening in Philip here. Look at 466. It's called, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. Verse 1, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not that I found, O Savior true. No, I was found of thee. You know, to really, to really mature in our faith, we begin to understand that it was not I who initiated. It was God who did the seeking and saving work. And this is the God we see here. Jesus is the, is the God who sought out Philip, and he has sought out many of us. If you are in Christ, it's because he made the sovereign initiative of grace in your life to change your heart, that you might now embrace him, to turn you away from self-idolatry and turn you to the worship of the true and living God. Jesus is that God. And when we are dealing with this God, nothing he does is arbitrary. Everything he does is on purpose. So for sake of discussion, when I say discussion, I mean I'm having the discussion, I guess. But for sake of discussion, What was that purpose? Why did Jesus go to Galilee to seek Philip? I think most of the time, most Christians would say because Philip was lost and needed to be found. That's exactly right. I am so glad Philip was was converted and through his ministry, others would be converted, including Nathaniel right here. It's a wonderful illustration of Jesus' words that he came to seek and save that which is lost. It's a good shepherd going after the lone sheep of his. He goes to to Galilee to fetch, to draw, to seek Philip. But we also need to zoom out a little bit to understand the greater purpose of what God is doing here. Uh, Go back to the beginning of John chapter 1. 
see, we have to understand that the end goal of our salvation is not really our salvation. The end goal of our salvation is the glory of God. That's the purpose for which we're saved. And so as we back up, we zoom out a little bit, go back to the beginning of the chapter, we see there's a lot more going on here than just about me and Jesus or my salvation, but it's about God's cosmic plan to, to build up a new creation who will occupy the whole world. Go back to verse 1. We're reminded Jesus is the eternal God, and this is an echo of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You look at John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is language of a new creation. John is setting before our eyes here the divinity of Christ. He reinforces it in verse 3. All three, all things were made through him, and without him was not made anything that was made. I know it's a confusing verse, but all it's saying there is that Jesus created all things. And then we come to verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's that Greek word uh, that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for tabernacle. He tabernacled. He, he was the dwelling place of God with man he came to earth seeking philip seeking nathaniel seeking you seeking me seeking all of his people not merely for our salvation but for a far higher and more dignified purpose that we might be saved by his grace remade into his image that we might be brought into the church which will one day cover the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea all for his glory see that's what israel in the old testament was supposed to do they were to be a holy people set apart for the glory of god radiating forth god's glory into a lost and dying world and yet in the old covenant with all of its laws and regulations, there was one thing that was lacking. All those things lack the power to change the human heart. And, we, and so we, what we find is that it's in Christ alone. And his purpose was to constitute a new creation, a new church, a new Israel, as a community of new created people who by the power of the Spirit will display to the ends of the earth the glory of God. Our salvation, he doesn't seek us merely for our salvation. He seeks us so that the grace, the glory of the grace of God would redound to the ends of the earth. That's the first thing that we see in this text. He seeks a people. He's the God who seeks. He's seeking a people who will be saved by his grace, renewed in his image, and will constitute his body, the church. Second, I want you to see who God seeks, and I know it should say whom, that's okay. Jesus goes to Galilee, and immediately we meet Philip. We're not told a whole lot about Philip. His name's mentioned about half dozen more times in the Gospels. He's not one of the major players. There's something significant we know. He had a Greek name. Philip's a Greek name. A good Hebrew probably wouldn't give his son a Greek name, so Philip may have been a Greek, or he may have been a Hellenistic Jew, that may explain why when we get to John 12, um, there's some Greek pilgrims that are seeking Jesus and they come and they actually come and speak to Philip about it. It may have been that he was Greek. We, we know he had a slightly different temperament and personality than somebody like Simon Peter. Um, 
In fact, when we're talking about Philip today, I'm going to guess some, some of you had to say, all right, was Philip an apostle or not? I can't remember if he was among the 12. Was he? And, and then if you learned a song in Sunday school, you've been sitting there singing that song. If you didn't learn a song, you probably have been Googling it. He's not the most memorable of the apostles. He didn't get it right all the time. Look at verse 45. He says to Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, he's technically not wrong. Jesus was raised in Nazareth, and he is the legal son of Joseph. I think if you, even the children of this church, were to answer, they would probably say Jesus from Bethlehem, the son of God. I'm not saying any of this to disparage Philip. I'm saying all of this to encourage us that God uses that God seeks all kinds of people to build his church. All kinds of people, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of giftings, all kinds of personality types. And so you don't have to be a Simon Peter. The church could not handle having a bunch of Simon Peters, could it? And so what we see in the call of Philip is that, that God seeks all kinds of people to build his church. If the body was all mouths, the body would not function very well. That's what a church full of Peters would be. And so you need a mouth and you need a thumb and you need a nose and you need all these different body parts to make up the body. And so God calls a diversity of personality types of people to himself. Just look at the New Testament church. In one congregation, you might have Jew and Gentile. That was unthinkable in the past. You'd have rich and poor. You'd have slaves and free. You'd have Roman loyalists and Jewish nationalists worshiping alongside each other. You'd have people with tender consciences and people with, with, with calloused consciences. And, and we need to understand that because it's easy to look around the church sometimes and compare ourselves with others. Philip could have easily said, you know, wish God had made me like Peter, be the spokesman. Peter gets all the attention. Peter, Peter, Peter. I'm not in the inner circle like John. I don't know if Philip ever thought that, but I know a lot of us do. And you look around the church and you say, well, what do I have to contribute? I can't play piano. I can't teach Sunday school. I'm not wealthy. Those are not the criteria upon which God seeks. The criteria upon which God seeks is God's sovereign grace and our need of him. Look with me at Deuteronomy 7 for a moment. Why did... God choose Israel from among all the nations on earth. They were difficult people, weren't they? Deuteronomy 7, God tells us why he chose Israel, and he wants us to understand it was not because of anything in them that he sought them. It was because of who he is. Deuteronomy 7 Deuteronomy 7, starting at verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all the peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping his, uh, the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the, house, uh, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, why did he seek Israel? 
because he sought Israel and because of his sovereign purposes. I would never have chosen Israel, but for that sake, I would never have chosen me either. And yet God does that. Why does he do that? Not because of anything in us, but because of who he is. Paul gives us sort of a New Testament version of Deuteronomy 7 in 1 Corinthians 1. The Corinthians are a church that we wouldn't have chosen them either. They were a difficult church. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.26, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Now, that is a strange way to build an organization, isn't it? We like to go get movers and shakers. There is no management class that's going to say, go out and find the most difficult people in the face of the earth and build a church through them. And yet, God has done that. If you keep reading verse 27, God explains his rationale. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He he chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. It's not to say that he's opposed to the wise, the noble, and the powerful, but he calls not according to what we have to offer, but according to his sovereign grace. He seeks us out. He didn't look at you and say, ah, he would be really good on my team. I, I really need him. He seeks us because he loves us. And there is no comprehensible reason that God loves us because there is nothing inherently lovable about us. And it's a testimony to him, to his sovereign grace towards us. Now, let's look at Nathaniel for a second. First, Jesus sought Philip. I want you to see another kind of person here that he seeks. Jesus calls Nathaniel an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, that was a rare thing in those days. The spiritual life of Israel was in shambles. And when our spiritual lives are a wreck, our moral lives fall apart, they crumble. And so he, Jesus says here, it's very rare to see an Israelite with no deceit. Nathaniel's a little bit different of a character. He, he, he's got a very different temperament, different personality. But what's interesting, and Jesus is making an allusion here when he says no deceit. That word deceit, if you're trained in the Old Testament, probably the first person you're going to think of when it comes to deceit is Jacob, right? Oh, that's why I read that passage from Genesis 28. Jacob was the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac. He, he was one of the patriarchs. His name means deceiver. And God chose Jacob despite himself to build the great family from whom the Messiah would come, to to build the new Israel. And if you really think about Jacob, nobody in this room would have sought Jacob. He was the youngest of the twins, which meant he he, he uh, wasn't given preference in any court of law. The older brother would get all the right to the inheritance, inheritance normally. And Jacob was, deceit was his second nature. He was a heel grabber from the womb. Never in a million years would we have chosen him, and yet God did. You know, there's that famous line in Romans 9, 13, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. It's a hard verse. A lot of people get hung up on the Esau I've hated, and that's that's really offensive. I get hung up on the Jacob I've loved. How in the world could a God who sees all things love a deceiver? 
How could he seek somebody like that? And yet God sought him, God kept his covenant with him, and as time went on, God transformed him from Jacob the deceiver to Israel who wrestled with God. See, this is what I want you to see. God seeks us not based on anything in us, any condition we meet, any merit. He seeks us by his grace. If it's based on something in you or me, it is no longer grace. It's something we've earned. I wonder if some of us get this wrong. We think that we have to get ourselves cleaned up, get our lives in order, get some religion before God will really start to care about us. You know, legalistic, externally righteous people are not what God desires. He's not interested in you cleaning up the outside because your heart still needs to be dealt with. So what does he require of us? Get your hymnals back out if you would. What does he require of us? What kind of person does he seek? Those who by the grace of his spirit know our need of the Savior. Look at 472. This is the hymn, Come Ye Sinners Poor and Wretched. Look at the fourth line. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. In other words, don't let your sins keep you away, but also don't think that you can get your life in order enough that you won't need his salvation. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. Those whom God seeks know our need of him by the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. And by his grace, trust in him alone for salvation. That brings us to the third thing. I know it's an awkward point, the way I said it. It's written there in your bulletin. It's what those whom God has found not seek, now seek. What do those who, now, who have been found by him now seek? Here's what I want you to understand. When God has sought us by his grace, and when we come to know that we are loved and upheld by him, then it reorients our life and changes what we seek, what we live for. It, it, more accurately, it changes whom we seek. How do you know that God has sought you? Because you begin seeking him. And because you know him. Look at Nathanael again. Go back to verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. And Nathanael says to him, How do you know? How do, how do you know me? Now, I don't think he's saying, how do you know my name or where I'm from? He's saying, you seem to be speaking to the depths of my soul in the way nobody else has ever spoken before. And Jesus answers him, Philip, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. The fig tree, at least um, when it was in season, it was used for shade in the Palestinian desert. Birds would, would come and land in it, Jesus tells us. Well, also, it was a place of devotion and prayer for those who sincerely want to seek God. See, the Pharisees, they prayed out on the street corner. They wanted to make sure everybody saw them. Sincere people would generally go out in solitude, and that's what Jesus is saying here. Philip, I saw you when you were alone, and I was there with you in the most intimate 
of ways. Nathaniel then recognizes that the one he has been seeking dimly through a glass in the Old Testament scriptures now stands face to face before him. And so in verse 49, he, he says, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And he becomes a disciple. He becomes a follower of Christ. Has he sought you? And is it evidenced by you seeking him? And seeking him with your life. Well, I, I've been in church all my life. I gave to the building campaign. I go to prayer meeting. I, I do all these things. You know, those are all really good things. Did you know you can do all of those things and not know Jesus at all? Matthew 7. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Uh, depart from me, you workers of, of, of lawlessness. Nathaniel's profession is so different. In effect, he's saying, Jesus, you know me. And now I seek you because you are, as John said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You're the one who not only has knowledge of, of the deepest parts of my soul, and you've seen the best of me and the worst of me, and you love me anyways. Not only that, but you are transforming me. And so as he says, King of Israel, he's really saying, I will follow you for the rest of my life. See, that's what those whom God has sought now seek. Those whom God has found now seek to know him. Look with me at verse 50. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, uh, do you believe? The ESV, our, the version we use here, it puts a question mark there. That's not wrong, but I don't think it's right. The Greek doesn't really tell us what the punctuation would have been. I think it's more of a statement than a question. I don't think it's, do you believe? I think Jesus says, you know, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe. And then Jesus makes them this amazing promise. You know, you're impressed that I saw you under the fig tree when you were there in solitude. You will see far greater things than that. And in verse 51, he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's clearly an allusion back to our Old Testament reading, Genesis chapter 28. And, and what do we find? What do we find? The God who, who sought Jacob in the wilderness there is the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you go back to Genesis 28, it says, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord. And Jesus says they're ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's he saying there? I've come to open the way to heaven. The place that people encounter God is not a stone out in the wilderness. It's not a temple in Jerusalem. It's in Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of Jacob's ladder. The greater things that Jesus says, Nathaniel, you will see, they're all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Whatever you are seeking in this life, whatever temporal pleasures you think will satisfy you, ultimately what your heart needs and can only find satisfaction in is seeking Jesus. 
That's what, what Jesus is saying to Nathaniel. As we begin seeking Jesus Christ, we find that he is exponentially greater than anything this world can offer. As we begin seeking him, we find that the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his wonder and grace. That's why the Apostle Paul, we studied it in Sunday school, he's, he, he says in Philippians 3, whatever was to my gain, I count it all loss. It's all worthless compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. And so those who have been found by him reflexively seek him above all else. We begin to say with, with Paul, for me to live as Christ. And so the purpose of our life becomes integrated in the purpose of Jesus' life, that the glory of the grace of God might be reflected in us to the ends of the earth. And my ambition becomes no longer to serve myself, but to serve Jesus Christ and seek him. That's why Jesus went to Galilee to find Philip, that Philip might tell Nathanael, and the two of them became relentless missionaries. Christ doesn't save us merely for ourselves. He saves us for his glory to go forth and tell others. You know, we don't find this in Scripture, but from history, we, we, we believe that Philip carried the gospel to Egypt, where he was martyred. Nathaniel would carry the gospel to modern-day Iraq, Iran, Ethiopia, Arabia, and India before he was martyred. He was a relentless missionary. This is what happens when we are found by the God who seeks us. We begin to seek to live for him. It transforms us. Do you get that, dear ones? If you profess to be a Christian, Jesus didn't seek and save you so that you would go on living lives for things that, that will pass away, for things that moths and rust destroy and thieves can break in and steal. He, he doesn't seek you in order to get you to clean up the outside, but to have a whole hidden life of hypocrisy. He saves you. And just as he says to Philip in verse 43, he says, follow me. He never half converts people. So that they profess to be Christians but don't follow him in life. When Jesus seeks and finds a person, that person is utterly transformed. They become new creations. The old passes away. The new comes. Nathaniel encountered Jesus and it changed him. Philip encountered Jesus and it changed him. And these people who once sought and lived for the world now seek and live for Jesus Christ. And let me ask you, dear ones, has that happened to you? Has that happened to you to such an extent that those who watch your life would see that that person has been changed by God? They're living for something different. Maybe there's a person that knows nothing of Jesus Christ, but they would say of you that he or she is living for something different, something better, something that matters forever. Those who have been found by him now seek him. And the more you seek him, the more you will find of him, and the more you will find of him, the more amazed you will be that he is better than you ever imagined. And that's why Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. How do we apply this text? First application, it's for those in here who maybe aren't believers or you struggle with doubt. I, I want to encourage you to doubt your doubts. Nathaniel asks, could any good thing come out of Nazareth? I, I've wondered how to read that. Uh, Y'all know sometimes I read it in 10 different voices to try to find the right one. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Is that like us saying, can, can any good thing come out of Hilton Head? 
Um, that's how I've always read it. I don't think that's what Nathaniel's saying any longer. I think Nathaniel knew Micah, Micah's prophecy, that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And so he's genuinely asking, whoa, 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 hold on. I, I thought the Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem. And Philip told him that he was from Nazareth. How could he be from Nazareth? Can any good thing, can the Messiah really come from Nazareth? And, and within just a, a moment, his questions were answered. But I, I want to speak to those who have doubts and skepticism. And, and, you know, it's not wrong to have questions about Christianity. We're in the South, so most people don't share their objections, don't ask questions, but sometimes people do. And, you know, what I find most of the time is that when people have doubts, they're so often rooted in misunderstandings, misunderstandings about the Bible, about who Jesus is. What I find is that most people that profess to reject Jesus Christ have never actually read Jesus Christ himself in the scriptures. They may have cherry-picked a few verses here and there, but have they really read the scriptures? And so for those of you that struggle with doubt, or if you ever go through a season of struggling with doubt, what I want to urge you to do is doubt your doubts and go to the scriptures and say, what does God really say about himself? Because many of the doubts that people have are based on misconceptions about Jesus Christ. And bring your doubts to the Bible. You cannot say you have rejected Christ until you've really studied, you've really read his word and sought to know him as he is. So doubt your doubts. Second, and I've already used this application multiple times in John's gospel. I'm sure we'll use it many more times. Those who have met Jesus have a deep longing for others to meet Jesus. Looking at today's passage, the previous passage as well, we've seen five people who have become followers of Christ. We saw in the previous passage, Andrew, John, and Peter. Here we see Philip and Nathaniel. Andrew and John, the apostle, were converted by John the Baptist's preaching. Philip was converted by Jesus' words here, and then Simon Peter and Nathaniel were converted by the testimony of others. This shows us that while there is only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ, there are many ways in which Jesus brings us to himself. Sometimes it's through the preaching of the word. Sometimes it's through godly parents who have discipled us. Sometimes it is through a friend or a co-worker who had the courage to tell us about Jesus. That's the case here. We see all those different things playing out in these verses. Dear friends, you do not have to be a preacher to be useful to God. God honored the personal efforts of these two untrained early disciples, showing he's pleased to give a prominent place in his economy to bold Christians who simply love their neighbor enough to tell them what Jesus has done. That's you. That's the commission you are given, dear ones to speak of the Lord Jesus to others. It may be through inviting them to church. It may be through actually proclaiming the gospel to them. And the wonderful thing about that, as overwhelming as that can seem, is that it doesn't require us having all the answers or a perfect gospel presentation. Because it's not our rhetoric or our knowledge that compels people. It's the Spirit of Christ. God can seek men any way that he wants to, but he often chooses 
to draw people to himself through people like you speaking boldly with their friends, their family, their neighbors about Jesus Christ. It may be through your words, as flawed as they may be, that God seeks and saves the lost. Won't you tell others about him? Let's go before him in prayer. Lord, how good you are to seek us because we are unworthy of it. We ought to be left in the darkness and deadness of our sins. We ought to, to, to be under the weight of eternal pain, and yet you have aggressively and graciously sought us and drawn us to yourself. Father, I pray that we would never grow tired of hearing that, the grace that you have shown. Father, I pray that as we get ready to sing Amazing Grace, that we would not sing it complacently with hearts that reflect ignorance or indifference about grace, but that we would sing to you with all that we 